I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is Joan Gans Cooney, co-founder of the Children's Television Workshop, which created shows like Sesame Street, The Electric Company, and 321 Contact, among others. The Children's Television Workshop, now called the Sesame Workshop, started the Joan Gans Cooney Center in 2007 to study the effects of digital technology on childhood literacy. Joan was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame in 1990, and she's received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Welcome. Thank you. Do you remember your first introduction to the alphabet or numbers? Well, I do, as a matter of fact. I did not go to kindergarten, but I started first grade uh, before I was six. And I don't think I'd been taught the alphabet because I remember it being on cards around the room, and, and, and I got it right away. I was so ready for school having not gone to kindergarten, that I started reading pretty quickly and knowing the alphabet. How come you didn't go to kindergarten? My mother didn't want me to leave home. I was the last of her three children, and so she had made me stay at home. So here I was raring to go by the time I got to first grade at five. Do you remember, was there a book popular or part of the cultural zeitgeist that you can recall when you were three, four, five, six years old? Like, What was your Sesame Street? I don't remember the children's books that I was read um, because, uh, for one thing, the books that were being read were probably aimed slightly higher than my age because my three of us were born in three years and three months, and I was the youngest. So I think probably most of the story books were aimed a little higher. I don't remember the books I was read until I started reading, when it was the Bobsy Twins and the Little Colonel and those children's series. But I started reading chapter books right away. Mm-hmm. I did not spend much time on picture books, but I remember Dick and Jane, which was the first reading book in first grade. I remember it very well. What did your parents do? My mother was a stay-at-home mom, and um, my father was a banker, and uh, so um, I grew up in a very traditional kind of home. This was in the 1930s? 1930s and 40s in Arizona. Do you remember your first interaction with television, your early interactions with television? There was the Adlai Stevenson-Dwight Eisenhower campaign of 19... 51, maybe, or 52, 52, and I watched Adlai Stevenson's acceptance speech at the convention. That was the first thing I remember, and then it was a couple, two or three years later that the Army-McCarthy hearings came on and changed history, and I watched some of that. I didn't have a TV set, so I was dependent on the kindness of neighbors to see television. You were in New York City in your 20s. What made you come to New York? I had known, I don't know, from the time I was the littlest child that I would not live in Phoenix. And uh, I went to the University of Arizona for college, and all during that period, um, my best friends were people that wanted to leave Phoenix and do something. And one of them, I went to Washington. So I joined her and her family in Washington after I graduated and worked for the federal government in the State Department. And then I went back to Phoenix and worked on a newspaper until I saved enough money to move to New York. But that was 
almost always the goal. What did you do when you came to New York? I tried to get a job at the New York Times and was eventually offered one on the women's page, naturally, and that was easy for me to turn down. What I had in mind was being an intrepid reporter on stories, and I had been on the women's page of the Arizona Republic, but they had given me lots of broader assignments than writing about weddings and um, that's and tea parties and that sort of thing. And I knew the women's page at the Times would be restricted to weddings, and that was not for me. (laughs) (laughs) And I went into the press and public information department of RCA, which owned NBC. And as soon as I could, I transferred down to NBC and did publicized their soap operas and other kinds of programs that they had, other programs that they had. And what was your personal life like at the time? I lived with a girl I had grown up with in Phoenix, and she was an actress and in Hollywood most of the time. So I had her apartment, and she knew everybody in New York for a variety of reasons. Her family was in Phoenix very prominent, so they met every Easterner that came out, every famous Easterner. So she knew, she had a very wide circle of of prominent friends, and she very generously shared all these people with me. So I was in a life that wasn't, that was very starry, and that part was fun, but I was, felt not up, I mean, I here I was with no achievement at all, and I was with people who were directors of television plays and director of Broadway plays, and heads of production companies and all of that, and here was little me, was how I felt. But eventually, I left RCA and went to NBC and then left NBC because they I, I couldn't make enough money to live, mm-hmm. practically, and went to, uh, to work for the U.S. Steel Corporation to publicize their play that uh, was on every two weeks on television called the U.S. Steel Hour. What what was that about, the U.S. Steel Hour? It was a drama every two weeks. It alternated with someone else's, another corporation's drama. But ours was produced by the Theater Guild, which was a very prominent production, Broadway production company in New York. And so I learned a lot about theater, about casting. It was in the bad old days when we had a, there was a list of people you couldn't cast in or whose names or whose plays you could not accept because they were said to have red ties. Communist ties. Yeah. So um, it was an interesting period that you had to clear, that we had to clear all names with the advertising agency. How did you develop an interest in entertainment and in in journalism? Your dad was a banker. Your mom was, was a housewife from Arizona. How did you fall into that world? Well, I, I took acting and acted in the plays, uh, school plays, and little theater when I was in high school. So I always had an interest in being an actress, but my father said, if you are an actress, you will never receive a penny of support from me. Thank God he said that, <laughs> because 
I had the interest, but I was much better behind the scenes, behind the camera, mm-hmm. as it were. And I instead, I, I majored in education and came out certified to teach in Arizona, which I had no intention of doing. But in those days, mothers said to their daughters, in case your husband dies, you'll have a job that will give you the same hours as your children and the vacation time when your children have vacation time. So all the little girls of my generation, or many, majored in education. But I never was going to spend my life with children and women. I mean, at that time, I wanted to be where the action was, and that's where journalism and television and so on. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Joan Gans Cooney, co-founder of the Children's Television Workshop, now called Sesame Workshop. The Sesame Workshop created Sesame Street in 1969. The germ of Children's Television Workshop started at a dinner party that you had at your home with your husband, then Tim Cooney. That's correct. At the time. How did that happen? Tim and I were friends of of uh, Lloyd Morissette and Mary Morissette. Lloyd was uh, vice president of Carnegie Corporation, the big foundation, and I we were very close to my boss at Channel Thirteen, who was a very theatrical, dramatic, and brilliant man. So he was there at the dinner party, plus someone I worked with named Ann Bement. So it was six of us, and Lewis, this very dramatic boss of mine, started talking in a very stunning, interesting, compelling way about the educational potential of television. His talk sparked something in Lloyd. Carnegie Corporation was financing studies of how children learn, child development, and so something clicked in his mind of why not use television to teach preschoolers? Because Preschoolers were marching to the center of the stage at that time. The government was talking about creating something that became Head Start. Early childhood had become more interesting to educators than it had ever been before. And so he asked me if I'd be willing to take a leave of three months from from being a producer at 13. I was producing adult shows, talk shows and documentaries, but... I was very inter- I was frustrated because you can do one documentary after another and have no effect on the society. And I wanted to see if television could make a real difference. I'd been that had been haunting me. So it was a perfect moment for me when Lloyd said, Would you like to do this? And the answer is yes I would, even though my boss didn't want me to. He wanted me to stay at thirteen. I took a leave from programming for three months and went all over the country uh, talking to educators of preschool children. You wrote a paper as a result called The Potential Uses of Television in Preschool Education. And what were the major findings of the paper? I met with several gifted teachers of gifted children, teachers of of, uh, preschool children who were uh, in... uh, in pilot programs that the government was doing as a precursor to Head Start. And um, if they had said no, this would be terrible. We couldn't have done it. But they were very supportive of the idea. It was all, yes, why not? It was uh, So I did a report on their reactions, 
And then I did um, so I described something like Sesame Street, an hour a day, a, a show that would be something like Sesame Street run by a corporation, a, a nonprofit corporation, something like the Children's Television Workshop, which is now called Sesame Workshop. And so you could see it on paper, and so it and it was very well received, the mm-hmm. paper by Carnegie and Ford and the government. So as a result of this paper, you suggested the launch of the Children's Television Workshop, and you suggested that they start a show, which was at the time not called Sesame Street. Um, How did you come up with the name Sesame Street? Well, we were panic-stricken toward the end. We did not have a name. We had decided to put it on a street. We knew it was going to be on an inner-city street. We even knew what street. It was a copy of a street in East Harlem. And, um, Which street was it? Do you know? I can't remember, but it is something like East 116th Street. I've seen it. It, it was a street that, by the way, had a mural on one of the buildings, and we had that mural on Sesame Street. So once we knew we were on a street... We had to then find a title. There was even a, someone wanted to call it 123 Avenue B, and I said, that's too hip and too <laughs> urban. So finally we got a list of about 60 titles, and we all decided that Sesame Street was the least bad. We, I don't know why we hated it, because we, we, were, we were hip. It was the late 60s, and so that's why we Sesame Street seemed oh so sweet, <laughs> and we did. Nobody wanted sweet, and then we all wanted sweet. I decided sweet was better, and so that was how we got Sesame Street. Partially, the head of our public information was saying, you guys are going to go on the air without any audience. How did you come up with the idea of having the show be in a city with an urban feel? Well, we had three extraordinarily gifted producers, John Stone, Sam Gibbon, and Dave Connell, Mm -hmm. all of whom had worked on Captain Kangaroo previously. John Stone was something of a genius, and everybody knew it at the time. And he's the one that came up with the urban street idea. And we all said, yeah, because our mandate was to reach inner-city disadvantaged kids primarily. Um, it, that is, if we didn't reach them it would, and reached everybody else, it would have been considered a failure. At what point after it started airing did you say, wow, we have something much bigger here in our hands than we ever expected? Right away, actually, as soon as it went on the air, the reaction was like swoosh. The The press was overwhelmingly favorable, and the audience reaction was overwhelmingly favorable. There were some academic critics, but there were very few of those. And I remember every interview I did with the press, they'd say, how do you feel about your critics? And I wanted to say, that is so the least of what we're dealing with here. To me, it was so actually trivial compared to what was really happening out there that it was like, for me, batting away flies. That's not nice to say, but that's how it felt. It was an amazing moment because women, 
the women's movement was coming on stream, so the press was not only deeply impressed with Sesame Street, but deeply impressed with the fact that a woman had founded it, which meant they all wanted to talk to me, which was I kept bringing along Dave Connell to interviews and felt terrible that these geniuses weren't getting the attention they should. You launched Sesame Street in November 1969. That's right. And that was with the help of producers like John Stone, who had been at Captain Kangaroo prior. How did you meet Jim Henson, and, and how did that collaboration begin? Well, I had seen a reel of his work, and and he was so admired within the industry, much less known outside, that it never crossed my mind that we could get him. And um, John Stone and Dave, and probably Sam too, had worked with him. They said to me, I think we'll talk to Jim Henson, the producer said. And I said, Jim Henson? I mean, to me that was like saying... Peter the Apostle. Uh, You know, it was amazing. And I said, do you think he would do it? And they said, who knows? But they went and talked to him, and he said he didn't want to do little children's shows, that he would then be categorized as a little children's producer, and that terrified him because he considered himself a family program producer, like The Muppet Show was his ideal show. However, he went home and thought, I have four children. He eventually had five. And it would be something to do for them and their peers. So I knew when we captured Jim Henson, I knew we had it, um, that we couldn't fail. And then Joe Raposo, the great composer, musician, came to work for us. A lot of people came to you because um, they were driven by civil rights. Yes, they were interested in children, but... um, but they were the idea of expressing the interest in what was going on in America, the civil rights movement, expressing it by trying to reach these children in need was very appealing to this group. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that they didn't weren't interested in children because they were interested in civil rights, but the two interests they had came together perfectly. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Joan Gans Cooney, co-founder of the Children's Television Workshop, now called Sesame Workshop. You mentioned right from the start that the show was widely accepted. What was harder for you than you thought it would be in getting Sesame Street off the ground? What was harder? I don't, you know, it was it was so much luck. We had so much luck. The timing could not have been better for raising the money because at that time government and private foundations were... And then Corporation for Public Broadcasting came on stream and public television as a big entity. They were interested. So the timing was all amazing. In the beginning, we had a hard time convincing some of the representatives of the federal government that children's television workshop, an entity that did not exist and had never produced children's programming, headed by a woman who had never produced a children's program. It was hard convincing them that that was the way to go rather than give the money to a cartoon company. And so we had to kind of battle our way through that. But eventually, everybody got aboard even though a woman at one of the foundations, Ford, said it will never be taken seriously if a woman heads it. 
How did you get funding for the show initially? You just talked about this perfect storm of the federal government and private foundations uh, and the Corporation for, for Public Broadcasting all well, coming together. We couldn't possibly have raised it had it not been for the brilliance of Lloyd Morissette. Who at the time was the head of the Carnegie Foundation. He was vice president of Carnegie, but, but the driver of this particular project. He knew Harold Howe at the Department of, then the Office of Education, but it would be the department now. And that, we wanted half the money from the government and got it. How much money did you raise initially? We raised $8 million originally. We raised four from the private foundations and CPB and four from the government. CPB, Corporation for Public Broadcasting. yes. Now, $8 million in 1969, that's not an insignificant amount of money. No, it would be like a 40 or 50 today, and people were shocked that that kind of money was being raised for a children's show. When we announced it, it was front page New York Times because it was, an, it was unbelievable that anyone would spend that kind of money on children. And then the social purposes of the program caught the fancy of the Times and other press. You mentioned the, the, the terrific response that the show got by critics, but there were still some people who were skeptical because you were sure. using television as a medium. What were, what were they saying? I had made the mistake of, of saying that maybe we could close the gap between the achievement of poor children, uh, disadvantaged children, and middle class and that was picked up that within a few months that we certainly weren't closing the gap. And that was absolutely accurate because the middle class was making gains too. So it it moved everybody up, but it didn't close any gap. So that was a very unfortunate phrase. So that was criticized. Now, what what was going on in your home life at the time? Uh, you didn't have children, so you didn't no. have to focus on that. Um, but certainly, your life had 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 experienced this sea change, going from a producer of public television, and all of a sudden, this storm comes of children's television workshop and Sesame Street that was much larger than you ever expected. Can you talk me through those days of working on this early on? Well, I was working all the time. And um, I think it was hard on my husband. I don't question that. That marriage ended in divorce of, in 1975, and it had nothing, really nothing to do with Sesame Street, but I'm sure it was hard on him, all the focus on me. And I remember hating that we'd walk into a room and everyone would ignore him. So I, I, you know, I, I'm sorry about it, but there was nothing I could do about it. And um, he was interesting. He was very involved in civil rights and was very helpful to me in many ways. Um, he was a, the first feminist I ever knew. Mm. I had never met a woman who was a feminist, even. Especially the woman at the Ford Foundation. Yeah, right. <laughs> but he was a feminist, so he was always pressing me to aim at being number one. He was also a very good writer and could help me when I was doing speeches and various things. But um, eventually he had problems that were not really manageable. But he was always supportive of what you were doing. Oh, very. 
You are married now to Pete Peterson, yes. and he is the founder of the Blackstone Group. Y- yes. Incidentally, did Pete Peterson play a role in Sesame Street at all? He did, oddly enough. He was on the board of NET, and NET is the, was the old National Production Center for Public Broadcasting. And I wanted them to administer the workshop for the first year and a half because we didn't know if we wanted to hire lawyers and accountants and all that. What if we failed and had all these this staff to fire? So my idea was hire those that we had to have uh, and then ask NET to supply the lawyers, accountants, and administration. And... Um, in order to do that, Jack White, who was president, said, you've got to present that to my board, and they've got to approve. And Pete Peterson was on the board, and he asked question after question. He was just fascinated with the idea and came up and said, this is one of the most interesting ideas I've ever heard. Well, naturally, I never forgot him. But we were both married to different people. Our lives went on in separate ways. And then we finally met again when both of us were divorced. It was very romantic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Joan Gans Cooney, co-founder of the Children's Television Workshop, now called Sesame Workshop. The Sesame Workshop created Sesame Street. What did Sesame Street look like in 1969? It was slower. It, it it was accused of being too fast-paced. <laughs> but when I look at the early shows, they seem very slow to me. We've changed it a lot now. Elmo was not on early shows and became the superstar when we were about, the super superstar when we were about 20 years into it. And he now greatly is far more popular than Big Bird. But Big Bird is iconic. I always say he is held up like a crucifix to vampires in the Congress every time they threaten to cut us. So Sesame Street took off immediately in the United States. Yes. When did it start to go global? Well, the Germans came to me within a year and asked if they could do a co-production for Germany. And their big bird was a bear. And... Bert and Ernie are a huge sensation in Germany, and have always been. And then the next thing that happened was that Latin America wanted a version, and we ended up doing that in Mexico for all of Latin America except Brazil. And then it began spreading to the Netherlands, Canada, which took the American show but makes Canadian, inserts Canadian films, and they've made it. It's called Sesame Street North. Australia, the English-speaking countries like Australia and Canada wanted it pretty quickly. Except for England. Except for England. Just wanted the Muppet pieces, did not want Sesame Street, because they did not want Americans teaching English children. Now, of course, we're in Bangladesh, we're in South Africa with an AIDS-positive Muppet, and we're working in Pakistan, and we're starting an Afghanistan version. And how is that perceived by society in Afghanistan, which tends to be conservative? How do you make adjustments accordingly? We work with their people mm-hmm. and their educators, and they choose what they want to emphasize. They may not want to emphasize letters and numbers. They may want to emphasize the values of, of mutual respect and understanding, which is a big value in our foreign productions. There's one version in North, Northern Ireland 
which emphasizes mutual respect and understanding. We're in Israel and Palestine with different versions. We wanted, we had hoped to have more unity, but it didn't work out. And there are characters that remain the same throughout all the countries, like, is Oscar the Grouch in all these? No, no, Oscar is and Big Bird are the same puppeteer. No, they, uh, for example, Israel's Big Bird or the iconic Muppet is a porcupine. Tough on the outside, soft on the inside. One Israeli said it should be the reverse. (laughs) (laughs) Your whole life has been focused on children's education through entertainment, yet you don't have any children of your own. Uh, How come? Well, I wanted children, and that just didn't happen. Um, And and, uh, I I really was deeply disappointed in my first marriage that that didn't happen, but it didn't. I ended up with five stepchildren and nine grandchildren, so children are very much in my life now and have been for many years. Many, many, many of the greatest artists, of uh, uh, writers, playwrights, book writers of children's television, uh, of children's material, have never married and don't have children. Maurice Sendak is one that's never married and has no children. He's where the wild things are. Yeah. So is the author of uh, Alice in Wonderland, I believe. I don't know. It's a very... Many, many men, many single men are big artists and writers of children's material. I can't be sure, but I would suggest it's because they they still have the child in them for whatever reasons. Do you feel like you have a an inner child or a child within you? Yes, I do, unfortunately. <laughs> but the grown-up has con- has conquered and those are the those that keep the child stay creative and those that have the grown-up conquers become the executives. <laughs> Darn. I have this theory that we're all sort of a combination of our fathers and mothers and that my father triumphed finally in me because much of me was very satisfied with being an executive, of bringing order out of chaos and being the boss. I really loved being the boss. I made up an aphorism that was in Forbes magazine, which is... I've been bossed and I've been boss, and believe me, being boss is better. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. My guest has been Joan Gans Cooney, co-founder of Children's Television Workshop and one of the founders of Sesame Street. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.